This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Prescott College's MBA in Sustainability Leadership Program. Get the tools you need to increase your earning potential while building a network of individuals that share your passion for making business better for the planet. Apply to the 100% online MBA in Sustainability Leadership at prescott.edu. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, still here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, five new sustainable business collaborations, why AI doesn't have to be a power hog, activists blow the whistle on climate-related risks, and should ads for SUVs be banned? It's Jeep Thrills, this week on 350. It's the 7th of August, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her perch in storm-ravaged Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. How's it going, Heather? How's your week been? <laughs> Hello. First of all, good pun. I like Keep that one. Yep. And my week has been has been pretty good. Uh, pretty windy, though. We, we got a ton of rain with the hurricane that came up the... The, the right coast and uh, and lots of trees down. So lots of people without power for multiple hours and days. Including you. Uh, I got lucky. I got lucky. My internet went out, but my power ah. never did. Although I was on a webcast this week and it was a little dicey there for a while. So when you're moderating, you that's just, not what you want to have happen. Yeah, you were just <laughs> on a webcast. You were leading a webcast yeah. with hundreds and hundreds of other people and of our, of hundreds our best and friends. Hundreds and hundreds, yep. Yeah, yep. so... So, and that that worked out. It did work out. So yeah, it's it's uh, quite quite stormy this this week here in New Jersey. And uh, yourself, Joel, how are you? Uh, you know, cool, calm, and dry. Uh, basically, everything's fine. Uh, you know, just another week living the pandemic dream. But I do want to talk about our upcoming circularity event because it is upcoming. I can now officially say this month, uh, August 25th to 27th, online. Um, and if you haven't uh, checked it out, please check it out. Uh, it's free to attend, um, which is uh, one of the great benefits to all y'all, at least of, of this pandemic. We, we lose out your money, but we'll, we'll work on it. Uh, but it's got a great speaker, is Ellen MacArthur. Of course, I'm, I'll be doing an interview with her uh, closing uh, session with Tim Brown, the head of IDO, 
uh, Audrey Choi from Morgan Stanley, Ovi Muhaley from the Ovi Muhaley Foundation, a former Atlanta Falcon uh, football player who is just doing amazing things with with young people, um, and on and on. It's it, we've got three uh, days or half days really of of great events, uh, sessions, interactive sessions, uh, breakouts, uh, be able to, uh, networking even online, and so. Check it out. Uh, go to greenbiz.com. You'll find it pretty easily or just click on the events button coming up the last week of August. Uh, what are you doing at the event, Heather? Have a couple of panels, uh, one on electronic waste that uh, I'm, I'm coordinating with some people from Iron Mountain and also Retriever, which is a new um, collection venture that's, that's starting up here in the Philadelphia area um, and backed by Closed Loop Partners. And my other breakout is on my favorite topic, transparency and tracking and tech and blockchain and so forth. Um, and, and so I have two terrific speakers that are going to talk about really specific projects that involve not just uh, circularity on how technology can help a circular business model, but on how it can also help people that that uh, are not necessarily helped by 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 the projects that uh, corporations think through, like low-income uh, folks, indigenous people, basically getting fair wages to people on the supply chain, so along the supply chain. So some fun stuff, some fun stuff. Fun stuff, and that's the month ahead. But before that, let's do the Week in Review. So I want to start with your essay this week, Joel, that appeared in the newsletter, From Water to Carbon, Five New Sustainable Business Collaborations. And one of the things I loved about this piece is that I actually had noticed all of these and was thinking, oh, we need to look at these more uh, because there, there was something different about them. There was something different about these um, this next generation of collaboration that, uh, that's coming out and not, not to mention the fact that it, it happened in July, which is typically quiet, but not this year. Anyway, tell me what you're thinking when you put this one together. Well, I will, but I'm curious, what's different about them? What did you see? I, we hadn't talked about this. So one of the things, uh, well, so a couple things. One, one of the ones I had noticed was the Industrial Innovation Initiative, right? So for me, as I think about what we need to do with renewable energy, the biggest missing component right now is how do you handle the process heat? Um, associated with manufacturing. So much of that energy is produced with fossil fuels and there really aren't that many um, great options for, for changing that. So I was intrigued by this new initiative by the World Resources Institute and Great Plains Institute that's really focusing on how the recovery, the COVID-19 recovery could help change that path. So the, um, that, that to me, it, getting low carbon into industries like steel production and concrete production and and so forth is really super important. But the other thing that I that I was thinking about just a couple of weeks ago was how um, I was on a, uh, one of the many webcasts that we've all been on. I was listening to some CEOs talk about what they saw as the the, the priorities for their company coming out of the the pandemic. And all all of the people on this particular call, and I'm not going to mention, I'm not going to name names, but they were impressive, and you would know them. Um, we're talking about how important environmental, social, and governance policies were to their company, but how they didn't want to be repeating and, or making the mistakes that others are making or 
you know, they wanted to work with each other. So I feel like, um, you know, we have, we see a lot of relationships between businesses and, and non-governmental organizations. But I feel like there's this new wave of business to business collaboration that's going to come into play as, as companies try to really accelerate what they're doing and use each other's resources. It doesn't have to be invented here. You know what I'm saying? And to get others, to get the others involved and pulled in, I think will require this sort of uh, action. So that's, sorry, I'm getting long-winded, but that's why I was excited to see your comment. Well, these kinds of collaborations have been around for a long time. And, you know, we've got the Marine Stewardship Council and the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil and the Textile Exchange. We helped birth the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance at our Verge Conference a few years ago. And on and on. There's dozens and dozens of these. But um, it just part of it's just the pace that's picking up and, and how much they're sort of drilling down into sort of much more nitty gritty so the or, or much bigger commitment so the transform to net zero initiative hosted uh, by BSR launched in July as many of these were um, encouraging businesses to adopt science-based climate targets uh, and that integrate uh, supply chain or full the full value chains scope three emissions as they're known um, and you've got Microsoft and own Nike, Unilever, Starbucks, Mercedes-Benz hosting their Water Resilience Coalition uh, hosted at the Pacific Institute, the industrial innovation you just mentioned, two in the finance arena, uh, the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials uh, launched primarily by European banks, but now uh, Citibank, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley have signed on to that. And the Rocky Mountain Institute, our good friends, over there launched the Center for Climate Aligned Finance, along with several financial institutions, B of A, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo. And that goal is to help uh, transition the global economy to net zero carbon future and creating a gold standard for financial sector climate action. So it just it's just getting deeper and you know hotter and heavier with these topics. Um, and pretty interesting. And then since I wrote this article a few days ago, in other words, this week, I just learned about another new one that the United Nations convened the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance. So looking at uh, how do you take buildings and other things, those, those kinds of assets and create net zero emissions. So the, the first of all, the net zero uh Goal is just mm. catching on in a big way, mm-hmm. and uh, anyway, mm-hmm. these and there's others. There's we haven't even talked about uh, the climate pledge that that Amazon uh, has made, right. and, and, and a number of other companies have are going to be signing on. In fact, we're going to be announcing some of that from the stage at our Verge conference at the end of October. But yeah, this is uh, just a fascinating area, and while these these uh, collaborations and partnerships are not new. They do seem to be picking up and becoming more and more substantive, working on bigger and bigger and more audacious goals. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah. So let's move over to a piece that you did, Miss Heather, <laughs> uh, back, uh, on AI, which is, of course, one of your... My other favorite to- topic. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's one of your hobby horses professionally. Uh, and thank you for taking that complex and fascinating topic on. But uh, what are you learning about uh, that's new in the world of AI this week? So the thing that that uh, has been intriguing uh, both of us, because I know this is an interest of yours, is how inter- artificial intelligence can help 
with sustainability, right? So there's a lot of different examples. Energy is probably the most commonly used one. So Google uses AI within their data centers to help automate when certain things are running to change from one server to another. There's there's lots of things you can do with with uh, using AI to to automate things uh, as well as to monitor things. So um, artificial intelligence is vitally important to many of these sort of forest uh, visualization networks that we're talking about using tons of satellite images and, and determining when something's changing and potentially taking action before deforestation occurs and so forth. So we know it's super important, but we also know it uses a ton of power. So data centers in general currently use about 2% of the world's energy, electricity specifically. But as companies deploy more AI, um, there's a big potential problem that could, could occur if we don't think about it now, if we don't put the right servers in place, if we don't right, put the right software architectures in place. Um, it, it, it's, it's projected that data centers could claim 15% of the power load of the world's electricity if we don't think about this the right way. So it could be an enormous increase. So I, I uh, was looking at some of the design elements that could uh, help participate. And in the, the particular essay that you pointed to was inspired by a panel at the Semicon West conference in July. And uh, there were technologists from Applied Materials, ARM, Google, Intel, Microsoft, and VMware that all talked about different ways of changing data center architectures um, that that could support a better AI, a more sustainable AI, if you will. So things like just memory. So there's a new memory call, called magnetic random access mem memory. So MRAM that's being developed by companies like Micron and Samsung and Toshiba, Qualcomm is also there. And it is something that can basically maintain the state of the information um, more holistically so that when the power is when something's powered down the information remains there and you can get it up and running more quickly so it's very some of them are very simple things like but you yeah. know what's fascinating yeah. to me about the, that two percent number that, that data centers use about two percent of the world's electricity and could go up to 15 percent is that number two percent I remember that from 10 years ago uh, or maybe even longer. And so that's been pretty constant. And that's sort of interesting to me that, you know, we've seen this just explosion of data, uh, a lot of things that we weren't really doing. And certainly the, you know, the streaming uh, revolution wasn't taking place, huge data hog there. And despite all that, we're still kind of at that 2%. I'm not saying that's a, that it shouldn't be less, but I'm just wondering you know, we seem to be making so much progress through efficiencies and, uh, and and new kinds of technologies like MRAM that that maybe we you know maybe that's a little bit overblown those projections that we you know progress continues to evolve um, so that we're we could at least you know stay steady state here. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't think those. I'm sure there's some level of, of overblownness to every projection, right? I mean, how many, it's so hard to be a forecaster. I would never want that job. But I would say that that fact that that 2% number hasn't budged while we have, as you pointed out, are using so much more stuff. There's so many more cloud services. There's so many more video streaming services. There's so many more cell phones sending information over sensor networks and 
um, communicating with data centers, the fact that that number isn't bigger is actually testament to all the things that have been done up to now, right? So energy efficiency has been a big, big deal for all of the data center providers, keeping the, the servers at lower power, um, all of the hardware manufacturers, the big microprocessor folks have been working on that for some time. I guess the point is that um, part of what we what we were looking at in this story is AI is really super complex and it does require a higher level of computing power. And, and so the, the computers are bigger, the, the networks um, needed to get the information around are bigger, the, the communications between the internets, you know, the, everything's bigger. So I think the goal, in my mind, if, it, if they could keep it to 2% or, you know, who knows, even slightly more, I think that would be great. But, uh, you know, I think it, it took a lot, a lot of hard work to keep that number at 2%. I'm sure it did. Well, let's move from a technical issue to kind of a moral and ethical one. This fascinating piece from Toby Hill over in the UK uh, at Business Green. Um, it's called We Banned Advertising for Cigarettes. Should we do the same for SUVs? And it's based on a study that came out from an organization, a climate think tank called the New Weather Foundation, that talks about the average emissions for new cars sold in the UK and how that's increased for the fourth year in a row uh, in 2019. And we see that same thing across uh, much of Europe and, and no doubt in the United States where where SUVs and light trucks continue to dominate the marketplace despite the growth of electric and hybrid models and, and smaller cars. Um, and, and the question is, you know, should we be promoting those or should we start to treat those like we did with cigarettes over the past uh, generation or so where uh, we don't promote them, they're still available, uh, but we begin to sort of ratchet down how much we promote them to the world. And so the question he asks and this study asks is, should we stop or should we, you know, ban and affect advertising? Um, and the New Weather Foundation study is, is is part of a broader campaign calling for what they call badvertising in the context of climate change, which is uh, cars, airplane flights, fossil fuels. So this just brings in an interesting a series of questions. What did you think of this, Heather? <laughs> so, yeah, I love this piece. But the thing that really jumped out at me, and I don't want to, I'm sure that other car manufacturers do this, but um, the, the numbers about Ford were pretty remarkable to me because they talk about how Ford, which is really talking up its electric vehicle portfolio, um, shifted a, like a huge amount of their advertising to SUVs. Um, over like a, a two-year period from September 2016 to September 2018. Um, they went from the beginning of that period to like a 50-50% split between cars and, and pickups and SUVs to 85% on the big stuff, right? And, and, there's a pretty, and there's a pretty very simple reason why. Um, it makes money, like $10,000 on, on those big vehicles. And, and you know, the margins are so much higher. So... Ooh, I mean, big profit dilemma um, for the for the companies. But you know, I, I'm sure that the other folks are doing this as well. I, I mean, I, I Ford is doing some great stuff with EVs, but but it kind of like it's one of those things where you it kind of reminds me of the the dilemma that the the big tech companies face. Right, they're all promoting renewable energy, and yet several of them have these massive 
uh, industry sort of verticals with oil and gas companies where they help them with exploration. So it's like, I don't know, what, what do you want to, for me, it's, it, it is mixed messages at the very least, right? At the very least. Yeah. And, and they refer to studies that, multiple studies that showed that the effectiveness of stopping of advertising bans on tobacco uh, helped reduce smoking rates and continue to do that. And so, you know, what that's how we sort of, in, in effect, revoked the social license to smoke, in, at least in public places in some parts of the world, um, in many parts of the world, actually. And so that's just an interesting question of how much we let the market do what it wants to do and people get what they want to get, climate be damned, or, you know, I, I, I'm concerned about climate, but damn it, I want to be able to bring home those two by fours and not have, have them delivered by somebody else. And, you know, how much we, you know, just the freedom that we all cherish and rightfully so, uh, needs to remain untrammeled, uh, in the name of freedom, as opposed to just looked at a little bit more closely, or at least not uh, mandated that we can't buy these things, but discouraged or at least not promoted. So uh, this is uh, driving change at its uh, most basic level, and I think we'll we'll continue to watch. I, I don't know. I don't see any movements here in the U.S. to ban this kind of stuff, but no. fascinating conversation on the other side of the pond. Hey, at least Ford should be uh, using that advertising budget to promote its its uh, electric pickups because I know they have quite a few coming. So yeah. put the money there, guys. For our next segment, I'm joined by an executive from one of this episode's podcast sponsors, Cox Enterprises. Steve Bradley was promoted to vice president of the new Cox Clean Tech division in late 2019, and he has been in that role since January 1st of this year. He joins us to answer five questions about the organization's strategy. Steve, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thanks for having me. Steve, you joined Cox as an engineer in 2001. Wow. Um, how have you seen sustainability in business evolve? So it's, it's been interesting for sure. You know, in, in 2001, you know, sustainability wasn't a thing. It, um, at best, people might have called it a green program or something like that. And so, you know, there was, there was a point in time where certain people who had the right vantage point realized things were changing, you know, from an environmental standpoint in the world. And, and one of those people, Jim Kennedy, was our CEO at the time. And, and he implemented um, our program, Cox Conserves, which was the company's sustainability program. But it, there weren't a whole lot of people that recognized the, the ultimate value uh, of sustainability, meaning the, the business aspects of it. And so I think that to me is the biggest change is, is no matter, you know, where you come down on, you know, climate change, um, people now have very acute, visible impacts of that and, and have realized that, you know, part of your business's resiliency and opportunity to thrive in the future is linked to how efficient you are with natural resources and are, are you adapting and are you building sort of resilient systems uh, to be able to cope with all these changes. And I think that that's been a great thing to see 
um, from the standpoint of investors taking this much more seriously, therefore uh, companies taking it much more seriously. I mean, when we at Cox think about sustainability, we think about it in terms of Cox being around another 120 years um, as a company with healthy employees and customers and communities which to serve. So Cox Clean Tech is a newer take on investing for impact. Why is this an important evolution for Cox? Yeah, so uh, as you said, I started back in 2001. Uh, I created the sustainability program at Cox. We set very aggressive goals for the company back then to be carbon neutral, water neutral, and send zero waste to landfill. Which, which were absolutely the right goals to have to challenge the company to consider the environment in you know, every business decision that it made. But what we realized over time is that we had an opportunity to do something much bigger than eliminating Cox's environmental impact, while at the same time meeting the, the growth you know, uh, the growth desires of the company to continue to grow this business and thrive. And so Cox Clean Tech was created to create uh, basically the next division of the company um, in the clean tech sector. So investing in and acquiring businesses who are helping others uh, with, with their sustainability. And those businesses run the gambit from agriculture to energy uh, to waste. And so, so the exciting part for me is to go from, you know, running a sustainability organization that would eliminate a company's environmental impact to building a for-profit, you know, division of the company that stands shoulder to shoulder with, with our cable business and our automotive business that truly could have an impact large enough to fundamentally change you know, the trajectory of the planet in a positive way. How do you choose the areas of investment focus? That's, that's a great question. Um, we, we sort of started with a top-down, you know, approach to say, okay, we, let's make some guardrails here. The guardrails are it needs to be, you know, good for the planet. So, you know, that we're, we're not going to think about, extractive industries and things like that. And so within that confine, there was still a huge amount of opportunities that we needed to go through. And so we said, okay, we've got to focus in a little bit closer, uh, a little bit more targeted in, um, because what we can't do is get distracted with a lot of different things. We need to be very specific in what we like and don't like. And so we set some we set some parameters that said, okay, let's look at it from a business perspective. Um, we need to be investing in areas once we'd establish that they are clean tech businesses. And by clean tech, by the way, I define clean tech as resource efficiency. So, you know, using less of the natural resources, adaptation, you know, basically um, acknowledging that the world is changing and a certain amount of that we're not going to be able to stop. And so we need to make sure that we have systems that can thrive in whatever these new conditions are. And then last is just resiliency, you know, that we've seen a lot of, a lot of emphasis put on resiliency around weather events and things like that, but it's applicable across a lot of different businesses. 
And so as we started thinking about that, we added in, where does Cox, like how can Cox leverage its core competencies to sort of create a right to win in a space? You know, we don't want to go into an area and, and not really know what we're doing. And, and so we want to make sure that we feel comfortable being able to leverage some of the knowledge that we've built in operating businesses, you know, over the last 120 some odd years. And so from there, we were able to very quickly narrow down into a few areas where we're focused. The three areas we're focused is um, sustainable agriculture, um, energy services, and then what we call waste to X, which is waste to everything else other than burying it in a hole in the ground. So um, that's sort of the process that we went through to make sure that we could find a couple of areas and then go really deep in those areas rather than just a surface level analysis of a lot of areas um, and not, you know, not be able to build the conviction that we needed to make big investments in the spaces. What advice can you offer for other organizations looking to make investments in this way? So I think, I think for me, and and you mentioned sort of a, a new take on impact, you know, investing, um, that's probably first and foremost, you know, I am a big believer in if you really want to have a sustainable business in the truest sense, it's got to be a good business. And so, you know, that you need to lead with looking at the aspects of the business from a financial standpoint, you know, are you in a space where you can have, um, you know, long-term competitive advantage because it doesn't do you any good to uh, go invest in a business that's not going to be around very long and have the opportunity, you know, to have a big impact. And so that's sort of how I would, would think about it if I was getting into this is, okay, let's put some parameters, some guardrails up there and say, okay, I want to have an impact, but to have a big impact, it's best to have a big company. Um, to, to be able to, you know, create that, that multiplier effect. And so that's how we look at it. We think about impact. We also think about, you know, the financials of the business to ensure, you know, that it can be a profitable, thriving business while at the same time having a positive impact on the planet. One last question. What is next on the horizon for Cox Clean Tech? Yeah, so um, we, we've made the transition from... Uh, making equity investments in a lot of different spaces, you know, to answer some key questions um, that would then lead to us making acquisitions uh, in those spaces. And while I can't go into, you know, specifics on uh, where we're, where we're, where we're headed exactly um, there's, there's going to be some really exciting things um, in the future um, especially in, in agriculture and waste to X from us. Um, there are some things out on the horizon that are pretty imminent. But what you, would look, what you should look to see from, from Cox Clean Tech is scaling up some of these businesses and acquiring businesses in these spaces where we've made investments. And then what we will, what we will then do is bolt on acquisitions and do what Cox is really good at, which is being operators of businesses. And, and so we can take these businesses to the next level. And so that, that's probably, um, you know, probably not super clear, um, but, but uh, probably as much as I can share about, you know, what's going to happen next. 
Well, I guess we'll have to stay tuned. Thanks for dropping by. My pleasure. You just heard from Steve Bradley, Vice President of Cox Cleantech, one of this week's podcast sponsors. Hi, this is Katie Fehrenbacher, Senior Writer and Analyst covering Transportation for GreenBiz. And last week, I got a chance to sit down, virtually of course, with the Chief Technology Officer for Fleet Management Services for the logistics giant Ryder. His name is Richard Moore. You've probably seen Ryder branded trucks on the highways. They're an almost 90-year-old company that has close to 50,000 commercial customers that rent and lease the company's trucks for things like shipping the goods you buy online. Ryder has a fleet of almost 300,000 commercial vehicles, and about 900 of those are alternative fuel, mostly natural gas, and they have just 29 electric vehicles. So yes, it's still early days in Ryder's electric vehicle journey. I asked more what's the biggest factor when it comes to acquiring new alternative fuel and electric vehicles, and he had this to say about it. As a fleet manager, you're looking at your total cost of ownership. That, that's the biggest decision that you're trying to make on whether you're moving to an EV or you're sticking with an, with an ICE. So your total cost of ownership is everything from your vehicle acquisition costs, you know, whether it's a lease or a purchase, to including your fuel costs on that vehicle. Um, and, you know, on, a, on an EV, you have to take into consideration your charging costs of that vehicle, your cost of electricity and your cost of installation of electric. So that total cost of ownership versus what your traditional diesel or gas product um, would cost you over that duty cycle is really the analysis that companies are starting to do. Despite the early stage of the electric truck market, Moore is enthusiastic about emerging technology in the commercial trucking sector. He described the industry like this. Really exciting to see all the OEMs um, innovating at the pace they are to introduce these products into the U.S. and and I think it's it's probably the one of the most innovative times in the commercial trucking industry in the U.S. and certainly I think that's going to increase as we move further and further into the future into the next couple of years. Last week, the National Whistleblower Center announced it was teaming up with the Global Financial Market Center at Duke University Law School. The new Climate Risk Disclosure Lab will, among other things, assist corporate whistleblowers by anonymously reporting violations of climate risk disclosure laws to the Securities and Exchange Commission, Commodity Future Tradings Commission, and other regulatory agencies. Here to tell us more about that is John Kostiak, Executive Director of the National Whistleblower Center. Hey, John. Hello, Joel. So what's going on here? Why the need for whistleblowers when it comes to climate risk? Well, there's been an interesting development, uh, as I know you've been following closely. Um, the days of climate denial are rapidly falling behind us, where every single country around the world has embraced the uh, Paris Agreement with you know, one narrow exception where uh, we're dealing with that here in the United States. But of course, in the United States, we have most uh, major corporations and uh, every, you know, virtually every leader on the state level. Uh, there's essentially a consensus has now been established that we need to use science-based targets to guide our work on climate change. 
And those targets are uh, consensus now are the two uh, one and a half degree uh, Celsius targets that are reflected in the Paris Agreement. So you now see a number of companies, especially energy companies, that are making all the right noises about their commitment to carbon reduction and the Paris targets, uh, or at least beginning to uh, say those uh, things because it's no longer socially acceptable to be in climate denial. That said, many of the business plans that these companies are implementing are inconsistent with the Paris goals. So how do you reconcile that inconsistency? Well, a lot of investors are asking that very question and the public and policymakers as well. The laws say for public companies that you have to be honest with your shareholders and tell them about the risks that your company is facing. And one of the key risks that face companies as well as a larger economy is the risk that we are not going to be prepared for climate change. Well, risk is usually mitigated through market mechanisms, can be reflected in stock price, credit ratings, and other things. Isn't this something that Wall Street should be determining? Wall Street is very much getting focused on this issue. And what we have heard from the investor community and from the assets managers is that the disclosures that are coming out of these companies are inadequate for them to evaluate the level of risk. So a number of years back, um, we had an uh, international organization, private sector-led, called the Task Force on uh, Climate-Related Financial Disclosures that essentially heard that from the investor community and said, all right, we're going to create some standards that companies will have to follow to disclose their climate risks. And that has been chugging along. Um, the problem is, is that those standards are not uniformly embraced. Uh, they are all voluntary, and so they are embraced to different degrees. And so we are arguing, and many others are starting to argue, that this needs to be a mandatory regime that has robust disclosure requirements and have law enforcement behind. So how is the Climate Risk Disclosure Lab going to police this? What's, what's the actual mechanism you'll be using? Well, uh, that's important because um, we need a educational forum for discussion about how to move forward. So we have two partners uh, at the Duke Law School, the Global Financial Markets Center, as well as the Nicholas School at the, at the undergrad in Duke, which is a very uh, respected environmental think tank. Uh, and we're going to essentially provide a hub for information sharing and idea sharing around how to put together a disclosure regime that is embedded in our laws. Uh, starting with U.S. domestic law, but this is something that really needs to happen around the globe. And so we have big ambitions about trying to create the place where this framework is figured out. Yeah, but you talked about the, the whistleblower aspect of this. Um, so you're looking for sort of in, corporate insiders to come to you and say, my company's behaving badly here, even though it's, it, despite what it's saying. And, and it, tell me a little bit more about what how it works. Yeah, this is one of the uh, success stories of the past several years that is not sufficiently well known. Um, if you talk to anybody who works in the area of corporate crime, uh, particularly prosecutors, and but regulators as well, like the SEC, and you ask them, have you been able to achieve the success you have achieved to date? Uh, could you have ever achieved it without whistleblowers? And uniformly, they say, no, it is impossible to do this work. The nature of these crimes is that they are um, carried out by people who are very sophisticated. They use a lot of very complex terminology. 
Uh, independent auditing firms, you know, under the Sarbanes-Oxley law were originally conceived as the place where the oversight would be provided. But what we have learned in our research is that the independent auditors are not doing the job with respect to uh, fossil fuel companies in particular, um, and that they're signing off on all kinds of very confusing and deceptive uh, st public statements. So the only way to get to the bottom of whether there really are, uh, we are getting honest disclosures of climate risk or whether we're having the wool pull over our eyes is to have the people who are on the inside who are knowledgeable about the, the, the technical aspects of uh, accounting and, and, and financial statements. So you're gonna help corporate whistleblowers uh, report this to regulatory agencies, the SEC, CFTC. Do you have a sense that those agencies are ready, willing, and able to hear this and be receptive to it and do anything about it? Well, uh, SEC and the CFTC are two agencies that have model whistleblower programs. They uh, get whistleblower intakes on a regular basis, and uh, our organization assists those whistleblowers. So we track this pr uh, pretty closely. Um, many of these cases are actually handled quite well. Uh, their their uh, anonymity is protected, so they can actually stay inside the companies if they choose to. Um, and they produce very large-scale penalties. The whistleblowers get a, a share of that penalty in the form of an award. Uh, it's a very virtuous uh, cycle. It's a very constructive partnership. Uh, has it happened as much in the fossil fuel industry as we would like? The answer is no. But we think the logical extension of the important work that's been carried out by these agencies uh, means that it's coming next to the fossil fuel industry. There's no reason to believe why it wouldn't happen there as well. Uh, obviously, I'm sure your listenership is asking, well, hasn't this all become so politicized that it's impossible to get any accountability out of these industries? And our answer is no. Uh, we believe that there's still possible to have uh, unbiased, non-political law enforcement. That's what our organization is all about. We work with both sides of the aisle. Uh, and by the way, we work with states as well as the federal government. A number of states have securities laws, some of whom are, are enforcing them against fossil fuel companies, such as uh, Massachusetts right now. Uh, and so um, there's a lot of opportunity to uh, ensure that we're getting the kind of disclosures we're entitled to. So, John, finally, how will you measure success of this initiative? How will you know it's working? Well, the first measure is that the investor community and others who are sophisticated about climate risk say that they have adequate information. Uh, we can uh, essentially use the power of the marketplace to prepare for climate change, to begin the reallocation of capital away from destructive fossil fuels over to clean energy. That's the ultimate uh, need. Uh, and again, this is a market force that's quite powerful. Uh, we think the renewables are winning in the marketplace right now. And the only reason fossil fuel players are hanging on to the degree that they are is because a lot of deceptive tactics are being used. So uh, that's number one measure. But then a, a, a second measure is are law enforcement agencies engaging? Because fraud is almost inherent in this world. Uh, and uh, right now, we don't see the focused effort on this area of likely fraud. And so we're going to be putting a lot of energy into working with our law enforcement partners, working with whistleblowers to put a real law enforcement regime in place. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch, and we'll be doing exactly that. John Kostiak is executive director of the National Whistleblower Center, one of the co-founders of the Climate Risk Disclosure Lab. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Joel.
This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Prescott College's MBA in Sustainability Leadership Program. Get the tools you need to increase your earning potential while building a network of individuals that share your passion for making business better for the planet. Apply to the 100% online MBA in Sustainability Leadership at prescott.edu. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization stories and events we've mentioned here. And while you're there, check out our six free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. We love your comments, questions, and tips. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.